So please turn to Romans chapter 4. We are going to look at David today. And as we do, I'd like to talk about gathering firewood because we've had an unusually nice, I want to call it spring. Your spring's a month away, or weeks away anyway, and, and uh, officially. Normally, you know, fall starts, winter st- Winter doesn't pay attention to the schedule, <laughs> right? And, and it, it, you know, especially when you're out in the woods, it's like there's snow on the ground and it's not safe, it's slick, it's all that stuff. And, and, and normally it'd be another two or three weeks before we started gathering firewood. But the weather has been so convenient that we've been out there for a few weeks already getting firewood, which is nice. And I, 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 I'm glad to get the head start on it and all that kind of stuff. Uh, but... I need to tell you about Pastor John's land, is everything is uphill, always, only. <laughs> there, is, there is no level spot on it. The most level place, they went and built a, their, their property. I mean, they built their house there. That's where they live. It's like, well, could you at least have left a level spot for a tree, you know? Because it's, it's, everything is always uphill, only. And, and so you, you cut down the tree. He marks the trees, the sick ones, the, the die, dead ones, the, the ones that are, have got other issues. And, and we cut them down, and then we cut them up, and then we carry them out. And, and it is a burden. It is heavy. Now, Wednesday night, I, I made the mistake of complaining about that in front of a couple of, of our petite young ladies who said, I could do that. And I made some, John described it as, uh, what was the word? Uh, not politically appropriate <laughs> comment about girls can't do that. <laughs> and and uh, I'm thinking, these, you know, these actually weren't the huge, huge rounds. These were, you know, like so, and, and I'd throw them up there, and then I'd walk. I had a path made. And, and, you know, the first one's not too bad. And the second one's not too bad. And by the third one, I start peeling off layers. And by the time you've done about six or seven of these things, uh, I'm dragging. And I, and I look at these petite young ladies, and I go, you don't know what you're, you're asking for. And I know they were looking at me and saying, you old fossil. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and so John and I, Pastor John and I talk. We're going give to give you guys a chance. We're going to give you a chance. Uh, and so uh, we'll, we'll make that happen. We, have, we normally haven't been doing it on Saturdays, but we'll, we'll make it happen when school's out, just, just so that you can know uh, and do it. But, but the point is it's a burden, and you can, you can bear a burden for a while, but after a while you can't bear that burden. And by the way, y- yesterday, Friday, Friday I went to the biggest tree I had cut down, and, and you know, I have a, my chainsaw is not a very big chainsaw. It's got an, an 18-inch bar. And, and this tree, 18-inch bar, the, the tree was a couple of inches bigger than my bar. So you take, anyway, and then I, I said, I'm going to take that round, the bottom round, I'm going to get it up to my truck. It took me about 10 minutes, flipping, rolling, grunting, resting. <laughs> Finally got it up there. And, you know, I only have a little pickup, but the bed is still that high, <laughs> the, the, the tailgate. And I looked at it, and I looked at it. And I looked at it, and finally, I said, okay, you know, and, and he didn't got it up there, and I'm going, try that, girls. <laughs> it's a burden. It's, you know, sin is a burden. Sin is a burden. It wears you out. 
and it defeats you. And you can bear the burden for a while, but, but it doesn't go away. It will not go away on its own. You bear that burden and it, is, it defeats you after a while. It becomes too much to bear and it cannot be removed by doing good things. When we, start, when we look at today's passage, we, we, we started last week talking about where then is boasting and, and it's excluded. We talked about does the law do this and, and we say what did we learn from Abraham? And we looked at the example of Abraham. Today we look at the example of David. Verse 6, just as David also speaks of the blessing of the person to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sins have been covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. And David, we find, it's not by works, but by forgiveness. With Abraham, it was by faith. And these aren't competing ideas. They're part of the same thing. But with Abraham, the focus is on faith. With David, the focus is on forgiveness that takes away the burden, right? There are, in Romans 4, we have these two Old Testament witnesses that are called to, to, to demonstrate that even in the Old Testament, it was not the law that saved people. Uh, it was faith. It was God's forgiveness. Last week, we looked at Abraham, who was declared righteous by faith. Today, we're going to look at David, who was made righteous by forgiveness. And just like last week, I started with what makes Abraham so significant. Today, we're going to look at what makes David so significant. Uh, we'll, we'll look at the, after we look at the significance of David, we'll look at the significance of David's sin, what it was he was forgiven for, and what, what he's talking about. And then we'll see what forgiveness does for a sinner. And then finally, we'll see what you need to do if you are carrying a weight of sin. Okay, so 4.6, uh, just as David also speaks of the blessing of the person to whom God credits righteousness apart from his work. So he picks, up, picks on David. Out of all the Old Testament, out of, out of, out of uh, you know, all these, the, these thousands of years of people that we could find in the Old Testament, he picks these two, Abraham and David. Uh, why David? David is the second witness called. First, we had Abraham, and, and it was about faith and how faith is pleasing to God rather than works. And now we have David, and it's about forgiveness. And, and without forgiveness, our works don't help us, they condemn us. That's what we find. Abraham was significant because he was the first called to be God's chosen people, and God's chosen people were made from him. David is significant because he is first in the Messiah's lineage, the first in the messianic line. If you will follow with me to 2 Samuel chapter 7, we find the promise to David. This is sometimes called the Davidic covenant. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 to 13. And to set the stage for this, David has, has had the idea that he needs to build a temple for God. He's got Jerusalem. He's made it the city of David. He's brought the ark there, and he says, we need to build a temple for the house of God. And God comes back and tells him, David, no, you're not the one to build a, a house for me, but I will build a house for you. And with that, we read chapter 7, verses 12 and 13. God is speaking to David. Through Nathan the prophet, God is speaking to David. When your days are finished and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you. Your Bible might say your seed after you. And I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Skip down to verse 16. Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. 
And we have this forever covenant, this, these forever promises. And God has made these promises to David. And David responded, and he comes back and he goes, God, is, this isn't your normal way of dealing with people. Uh, verse, verse 18, just David's response, Who am I, Lord? And who are the members of my household that you have brought me this far? Who am I? God, why would you do this for me? Why would? Because God chose David. He just, he, it's, it's, it's what he did. And this is the promise that set David and his line apart. The, this descendant that was promised came to be known as the Messiah. Even before he came, he was known as the Messiah. And people were looking for the Messiah. It means the anointed one. They were looking for that one. They, they, this, this, they did not see this and say this was fulfilled by Solomon. Now you can look at this and you see how Solomon fulfilled some of these things. But Solomon is not the answer to this. Solomon may have been a type or a first picture or something like that, but Solomon is not the answer to this. Solomon was, it was recognized, as great as Solomon was, he was not the one that God had talked about. And they knew that. And at the time of Christ, they were looking for the Messiah. That's why when John the Baptist went out, they said, are you him? Are you the Messiah? He says, no. But they asked, are you him? Because they were looking for him. Of course, they didn't see Jesus when he came, and many Jews are still looking for a Messiah today. They don't know that they've missed him by 2,000 years. They hear that, and they reject that whole concept, the whole idea that it might be Jesus. But that is who they were looking for, the one. And David is the one that promise was, was, was uh made through. So David is the one God took aside and said, I will build your house. Your descendant will come after you. I will establish his kingdom. Your throne will endure forever. And we see David treated as significant in the New Testament. So last week, dealing with Abraham, if you remember, I started with Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, right? We're going back there. First verse, first two verses, really, Matt 1 and 2, first two verses of the New Testament. Uh, and they we saw last week that they set Abraham apart as significant. Let's see what else they say. First two verses of the New Testament. The, the record of the genealogy of Jesus, the son of David, actually the first verse, the son of Abraham. <laughs> the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. The first two names, the two names out of the whole Old Testament that God says are significant to start the New Testament with are David and Abraham. Funny, uh, we come along in, in, in Romans, and, and these are the two names that he pulls out to say why grace is more important than the law, why faith is better than the law, why forgiveness is better than the law. <laughs> He's going back to, to those two most significant names from the Old Testament. David is one of those two. Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. They are the significant ones. We looked at Palm Sunday. We're just a few weeks away, right? Uh, we're, we're, we're drawing near on Easter. So staying in the Gospel of Matthew to Matthew chapter 21, uh, verse uh, 9, we're at Palm Sunday, right? Jesus is riding into Jerusalem, gentle, riding on a donkey. He's, he's coming in. He's it's the, a week before or the week of when he's going to be crucified. They're going to betray him. But as he rides in, uh, we read this in chapter 21, verse 9. Now the crowds going ahead of him and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Hosanna to who? The son of David. They're saying he's the one. He's the Messiah. He's the one God talked about. And they were correct. Even though they soon thought they were wrong, they were right. They were calling him the one. They recognized this is significant. Why is David so significant? Because he is the, the first of the line of the Messiah. He is the one that line is to come from. These two names, David and Abraham, they were the two significant names, the two most significant names from the Old Testament. How do we know that? Because of these things we've just, we've just seen. 
So when you want a second witness from the Old Testament to why, why it is not by works of the law, but by faith that we are saved, who better to call on than David and Abraham? And so when we get to Romans, as the Apostle Paul is writing the book of Romans, he calls on those two names, and, and they are really good names. So David is the perfect person. He is the significant second witness. But he's also significant for another reason, and that is because the sin of David was so significant. Uh, the sin of David was huge. Because we can praise David's courage. I mean, uh, I just every time I think of David and Goliath, you know, it's just, it's just an impressive thing that David, this little shepherd, well, I want to say little shepherd boy, because my theory is he was about 17 or 18. Uh, that's what I think, and I think he was probably taller than me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Little next to Goliath, but still bigger than me. You know, I, 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 yeah, he was probably, you know, David, uh, movie star looking kid, you know, uh, all those kind of things. Uh, he was probably all of those things, he, he, but he had courage. He had tremendous faith that motivated him to do the things he did. He had this relationship with God that we read about in the Psalms that, that makes him able to write and say these things, and we read them, and, 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 and sometimes I just go, man, I, I can't get that close. I, I, I don't have that feeling. And, and, and we think of all the great things about David, but then uh, we cannot forget David's sins. And in 1 Samuel 11, we have his adultery with Bathsheba. And I'm going to turn there. 1 Samuel chapter 11, because this is, this is important. If it, wasn't, if it wasn't for how bad, badly David sinned, then the fact of using him as the example for forgiveness would not matter as much. It's like, I don't want to say it's a really good thing that David sinned, because sin is never a good thing. But it is important to see what kind of a sinner we're talking about. So chapter 11, verses 3 through 6. So David, he's seen Bathsheba. He's walking on the roof. He sees Bathsheba down there bathing on the roof below him, the next house over. So David sent servants and inquired about the woman, and someone said, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Elam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Then David sent messengers who had her brought, and when she came to him, he slept with her. And when she had purified herself from her uncleanness, she returned to her house. But the woman conceived, and she sent word and informed David and said, I am pregnant. So David got the neighbor lady pregnant. Husband is off fighting war. David says, oh, no, this is bad. I better do something about it. So he sends to have Uriah brought back from the battlefield. Send Uriah, have Uriah come back to give me a message of how it's going. He'll take care of the issue, and it won't be a problem. And, of course, Uriah, I shouldn't say, of course, Uriah doesn't, but, but Uriah doesn't. He's too noble. He doesn't do what David expects him to do, and he stays away from his wife because he feels like he's honoring the troops. And so we get to verses 14 through 17, same chapter, 1 Samuel 11. So in the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. He had written in the letter the following, Station Uriah on the front, of the front line of the fiercest battle and pull back from him so that he may be struck and killed. So it was, as Joab kept watch on the city, that he stationed Uriah at the place where he knew there were valiant men. And the men of the city went out to fight against Joab. And some of the people among David's servants fell, and Uriah the Hittite also died. So David is guilty of conspiracy to murder. It's, this, is not, this is not manslaughter. This is not accidental murder. This is not, oh no, I was careless and something bad happened. This is not a crime of passion, 
where he suddenly flares up in anger and does this. This is cold-blooded conspiracy to murder. It, it, it doesn't get worse than that. This is like a mob boss sending hitmen. And it's like sending the guy you're having, having go, going to have hit with the message to deliver to the hitmen. This is, this is, this is bad. I mean, there's, there's no, there's no possible, you, you can try to make this sound better, but it, you, you, you're wrong. The prosecutor would have a field day with this. Uh, David, David, would, David is bad. His sin is significant. And interestingly enough, the consequences of this sin are not nearly so great as the second sin I'm going to point to. Second Samuel verse, uh, oh, I'm sorry, before I go there, I want to uh, talk about Psalm 51. Because it was in, in, in reference to this sin with Bathsheba that David wrote Psalm 51. Uh, we know that because it tells us that. If, if you look at Psalm 51, there's a little heading at the start of it. For the music director, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet came to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Now, Nathan the prophet didn't come to David until after Uriah was dead. And so this is all been done. And David wrote Psalm 51, and, and, and I want to read the portion of it that was our scripture reading. Save me from the guilt of bloodshed, God, the God of my salvation. Then my tongue will joyfully sing of your righteousness. Lord, open my lips so that my mouth may declare your praise. What's he saying? I, in the meantime, until you do this, Lord, I cannot joyfully sing of your righteousness. I cannot. I am carrying my sin with me. My guilt is with me. I cannot. Lord, open my lips so that my mouth can declare your praise because right now my lips are shut. I can't say anything, Lord. For you do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offering. He says, if there was something I could give you to make up for this, Lord, I'd do it. But I can't. There's nothing that you want. There's nothing you need. I don't have anything to offer you that you say, oh, that's worth it to me. David is, is saying that. And he says, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, God, you will not despise. And that word contrite essentially means crushed, repentant, guilty, sorry. When he, and he's saying, here's what you want from me, Lord. You want my confession. You want me to, to, to come to you in honesty. And, and, and that's just, just, just a part of it. The Psalm 51 is is just a rich psalm, and it's worth going over. But, but as far as the effects of sin, while the effects of David's sin with Bathsheba were bad, the effects of his sin in what sounds to me like a lesser sin were far more severe. 2 Samuel chapter 24. This is, this is, this is a strange sin. I have a hard time understanding this. Verse 20, chapter 24, verse 1, Now the anger of the Lord burned against David again, and he incited David against them to say, Go count Israel and Judah. So the king said to Joab, the commander of the army who was with him, Roam about now through all the tribes of Israel from Dan to Beersheba, meaning from north to south, and conduct a census of the people so that I may know the number of the people. So David's sin is he, he commanded a census to be taken. I'm going, but the Israelites did censuses. I mean, read the book of Numbers. It starts with a census at God's direction, and it ends with a census at God's direction. That's why it's called Numbers, <laughs> right? It's got numbers in there, and he counts the people. How many people were saved at, at Pentecost? 3,000. How do we know it? Somebody counted, right? The, the Bible has numbers like this. God isn't offended by them. I think what's going on here, though, is, is, is we find it's all about motivation, and I think David must have been doing this out of the pride of his heart. 
like, kind of like Nebuchadnezzar standing on the, on, on, on the rampart looking over his, his walls of, of Babylon that he had adorned for you know, the hanging walls, the gardens of Babylon, the, one of the wonders of the ancient world. And he looked out and he says, is this not great Babylon, which I have built for my glory? And God struck Nebuchadnezzar so that for seven years he went around and ate grass like an ox. And that was the punishment on Nebuchadnezzar. David, David calls for a census of the people and God doesn't like it. And so we go to verse, verses, verse 10. It says, now David's heart troubled him after he'd counted the people. So David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done, but now I please overlook the guilt of your servant, for I have acted very foolishly. And God says there's going to be punishment for this. So look at verse 15. So the Lord sent a plague upon Israel from the morning until the appointed time, and 70,000 men of the people from Dan to Beersheba died. I'm going, that doesn't sound like that big a sin to me. <laughs> a little arrogance, a little pride, 70,000 thousand people died because of David's sin. And I'm going, I, yeah, bottom line, God is in charge of life and death, and, and we're all going to die someday. And if I die today instead of 10 years from now, I don't think it's going to bother me three million years from now. You know, it's, it's like, it's like uh, that to here and now, it's, it's huge, but but there and then, it's, it's in the long run, in the big picture, it doesn't matter a whole lot. So God's in control. It's, 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 it's bad, a bit, but, but I mean, it's not, it, is, it doesn't reflect as bad as, on God as it might sound, that these people would die because of David's sin. But it does reflect very badly on David. Can you imagine something you did that would cause, cost the lives of 70,000 people and how you would live with that? How do you deal with that? How do you function after that. And by the way, how did they know there were 70,000 people that died? <laughs> Somebody had to count. I'm going, I don't, I don't get it, Lord. We gauge from the response that God took that God took it pretty seriously. I thought about this. I, 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 when I was a young man and a very, very foolish stupid and dangerous driver. I wrecked five cars, but I never hurt anybody. And I look back on that, and I think, thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Because I, I, I think of what it would do to my conscience if there was somebody out there crippled for life. Because I drove recklessly enough. I mean, I, it wasn't just I was a bad driver like I was oblivious not knowing what I was doing. I knew exactly what I was doing. And I did it stupidly and in stupid places. And by God's grace, I never hurt anybody. And, and I am so thankful to God that I don't have that on my conscience. Because I deserve to. David had 70,000 lives on his conscience. David was well aware of his sinfulness. David was, well, how do you think about that? So think about what a works-based salvation, if it was by works, what that would mean for David. How do you accomplish enough works to make up for that? How do, how, do you, how do you atone for what you've done when you have caused that kind of damage? What works do you do to compensate for adultery? 
There's a proverb, I can't remember exactly how it goes, but it says something like, like jealousy is never satisfied. A man will accept no price. Uh, and, 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 and because jealousy <laughs> says, oh, well, sure, for 100 bucks, I'll forget that. No, jealous, jealousy will never do that. Uh, how do you compensate for adultery? What works do you do to wipe out the penalty for premeditated murder? How do you do that? What could you possibly do to make up for something you did that resulted in the death of 70,000 people? David is significant for one thing because the Messiah came from him, but for the other thing, if anybody understood the importance of forgiveness, it was David, maybe more than anyone else we can think of in the Bible. And David testifies back in Romans chapter 4, verse 6, the bless, of the blessing of the person to whom, just as David also speaks of the blessing of the person to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Because David's saying, if God credit, credited it according to works, I am in trouble. Because there's, you know, credit, cre- there's accounting terms here. It's like, I, I, I try to, and if you look at the Greek, it doesn't look maybe so Clearly, that it's accounting, but 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 it, it, we have this Old Testament, and we talk about being, things being credited to your account. We look at New Testament, we think about look at things being credited to your account. Uh, it's just the way God keeps track of sins, it seems to be. And if you've got that on the expenses side, how are you going to have enough works on the asset side to to cover that? How are you going to possibly do that? Uh, you can't do it. And so, what does David say? It says, blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sins have been covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. I want you to know those are the first two words or first two lines of Psalm 32. And we will look at Psalm 32 before we're done. That's that's where we're going to to end with today, Psalm 32. Uh, He does not say, blessed are the righteous who never sin." In fact, I don't think you find that anywhere in the Bible, do you? Because it's not there. He doesn't say, blessed are the righteous who's never sins. He says, he says blessed is, are those whose sins are forgiven. And we have three different, this is said in three different ways. You see that? Blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven, whose sins have been covered, whose sin the Lord will not take into account. When I say three different words, we have forgiven, covered, and not take into account. You say, Steve, not take into account. You don't know how to count, Steve. You said one word. I said, yes, I did. Because in Greek, that's one word. <laughs> uh, and, and, and we'll look at that word because it's well worth looking at. Forgiveness, or forgiven, the word is afetheisen, afetheisen. Be quiet, Jeff. <laughs> he says, you're hurting my ears. <laughs> means to let go from an obligation. When referring to sin, to pardon, to forgive, to pay the penalty for sin. In order to let go of an obligation, you have to pay that obligation. It costs you to make that payment. Uh, And he says, in in reference to sin, to pardon, to forgive, to pay for the penalty of sin. To be forgiven means that you have been freed from the penalty of sin because someone else has paid it. That's what forgiveness means. Someone else is paying the price of your sin. The price had to be paid. You didn't have to pay it. Salvation is free, but it costs everything. It costs Jesus his life. It costs a price we could not pay, but it's free to us because we've been forgiven. 
but it's a price that if we had to pay it, we could not. And then he goes on, he says, and whose sins have been covered. And we are covered by the blood of the Lamb. They are no longer visible. Here's your, here's your sin, and Jesus took his blood. And when God looks at the book of your sin, all he sees is the blood of the Lamb. Your sins have been covered. They are no longer visible. They are no longer evident. And it doesn't matter. I mean, so here is, here is David with his 70,000 people dead. And here is Steve with his bad driving, right? Nobody died. 70,000 people died. Take that, David, <laughs> right? Once they're blotted out, they look the same. People sometimes think, no, no, you don't understand. My sin is so great. I did so much wrong, or that guy did so much wrong. And we point to them or we point to ourselves. And we say, but my sin can't be forgiven that way. Mine is too great. Mine is too much. No, when it's blotted out, it's blotted out. When it's covered, it's covered. It doesn't matter. Once it's blotted out, it all looks the same. Jesus forgives. Jesus, your sins are covered. Blessed are those, blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sins have been covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. Now, if you look down at verse 6 again, just as David also speaks of the blessing of the person to whom God credits righteousness apart from works, that word credit in verse 6 is the same word as not take into account on verse uh, 8. The, the taking into account and the credit. It's the same word used in, in both those, those passages. Uh, slightly different. One is logizatai, <laughs> and the other is logizatai. So, so different endings, same word. Logizatai, logizatai. To count something to someone, to somebody, means to reckon something to a person, to put to his account, either in his favor or for what he must be answerable. Either to his favor, or for which he must be answerable. To put it to his account. And so, you know, our world is full of people who are busy hoping that they have enough on this side of the account to balance out that side of account. David says, blessed is the man God is not doing that to. Blessed is the man whose God is not taking into account his sin. Because if God is taking into account that sin, you will never cover it over with your good works on the other side. David, David didn't say, blessed am I because I have enough good works to cover over my sin. He said, blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. Think of David and the things he would be answerable for if he had to be answerable for them. If God was to charge him to his account, whatever law-keeping he did and whatever works he did would never equal the charges against him. However we described him, we would not use the word blessed when we thought of David. We would think most miserable of men. It would be better for him had he not been born, if he was charged, if these things were charged to his account, because he could not pay them. But instead, he's able to say, blessed is the one whose sin uh, is not taken into account. And David was not righteous because of his works. David was righteous because he was forgiven. And because he was forgiven, God saw no unrighteousness in him. So let's turn to Psalm 32. And please, if you have your Bible, turn with me to Psalm 32. 
It's a Psalm of David. This is, this is your guideline. This is your template. If you are walking around with a load of sin right now, you say, I have been walking with this sin. I didn't believe I could get rid of it. I have been walking with this sin. I didn't trust God with it. I have been walking with this sin because I have been unwilling to confess it to God. I don't believe Jesus. Psalm 32. The first two lines are going to sound really familiar. How blessed is he whose wrongdoing, how blessed is he whose wrongdoing is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How blessed is the person whose guilt the Lord does not take into account. And then he adds, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. And you say, yeah, we just read that. We just read that in, in Romans 4. Yes, we did. That's your goal, to be that person whose, whose wrongdoing is forgiven and whose sin is covered and, and whose, whose uh, guilt the Lord does not take into account. And then David goes on. When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was failed with the heat of summer. Selah. And I, Selah becomes a really important word that we don't know what it means in this psalm. What's he saying? He says, I, didn't, I held on to my sin. I bore that burden myself. I bore that burden. I did not go to God with it. I kept it to myself. When I was bearing that to myself, my body wasted away. I was groaning all day long, day and night. It was heavy on me. My vitality fails with the dry heat of summer. Now, we don't know what Selah means. We, we don't. I, I like to joke that it means drum roll, but I'm sure it doesn't. They, they, they theorize it, it, it's a musical direction, or I like the idea that it means pause. Stop and think about this for a minute. I was wasting away and stop there. Before you go on to the next part, just stop there. Yes, I was. Or yes, yes, I am. Describing me. And then we go on to verses 5 and 6. I acknowledged my sin to you. Wow. And I did not hide my guilt. I said, I will confess my wrongdoings to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin, Selah. And this word that we don't know what it means, you know, I don't know how to say what it means, because I don't know what it means. Nobody knows for sure what it means, but it's like it's so important that that word is there right at that point, because it's like, like just stop and look at this. I was wasting away in my guilt. I could not handle it. I was dying of the guilt, the pressure, the, the burden that I felt. And then I confessed it. I took it to God. I didn't hide my guilt. And you forgave my sin and stop. Whatever that word means, stop and, and rest in that for a minute. Because, wow, that's so good. Verses 6 and 7, Therefore, let everyone who is godly pray to you in a time when you may be found. Certainly in a flood of great waters, they will not reach him. You are my hiding place. You will keep me from trouble. You have surrounded me with songs of deliverance. Selah. And we find, once again, he's gone from being crushed to confession to songs of deliverance. That is a progression that is real 
and that matters. And that is what forgiveness is. That is what so many people trapped and defeated and under that burden that you don't need to carry. Jesus didn't die so that you can walk around miserable feeling guilty and somehow that's supposed to make him feel better because you feel guilty. Jesus died to take that from you, to free you, to give you eternal life. And with that is forgiveness from sins. And you can have the joy of your salvation. Psalm 32, if you are walking with a burden, do not forget this psalm. Mark it, find it. Go home and read it for yourself. Say, I don't think that guy knew what he was talking about. I'm going to find some other meaning for that. You try. (laughs) Go ahead, try. You prove me wrong, I'll be proven wrong. But I kind of think you're in trouble trying to do it. And then, and then he just kind of, so this is what you should do and what you could expect, right? I will teach, instruct, and teach you in the way which you should go. Now, who is David to think he can instruct and teach us on what it means to be forgiven? <laughs> nobody better. There is nobody better to teach us about what it means to be forgiven. I will advise you with my eye upon you. Do not be like the horse or the mule which have no understanding, whose trappings include bit and bridle to hold them in check. Otherwise, they will not come near you. The sorrows of the wicked are many, but the one who trusts in the Lord, goodness will surround him. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous ones, and shout for joy, all you who are upright in heart. And you see how far that last verse is from the first verse. For the guilty, for the person who needs forgiveness, it is there and it is real. For the person under a weight of sin, forgiveness. For the person crushed by guilt, forgiveness. If you try to hide it from God, you continue to bear that. I want to go like this, because this is the side I put those rounds when I walked up the path. (laughs) After three or four days, I don't hurt anymore, just in case you were wondering. If you try to hide it from God, you continue bearing that weight. If you confess your guilt to him, you will find forgiveness. Let's pray. Lord God, you paid the price. You paid the price of my sin. So Lord God, you can forgive sin. And for some reason you want to. Lord Jesus, I thank you for that gift. And I ask for everyone here, if there is anyone, anybody carrying that load, that they yield it to you today. I pray in Jesus' name.